You know, I was blessed with just observing the testimonies that were given. I think about three, maybe four of those were here, uh, long-term members. The rest of them have come the last three years, three to four years. And it's just, uh, it hits me what Harriet was sharing. How many others are out there? They have no idea of what the Lord can do in their life. And we've yet to discover who they are and to meet them. They're out there. You know, one of the uh, difficulties of going on an overseas trip, as uh, many of you know that uh, we went a couple weeks ago to Nepal, is coming back. It, it's difficult coming back in a couple ways. Uh, one is to, to get in a routine. And the second question that hits you is, do I want to get into a routine? Is this the routine I really want to be in, I need to be in? <clears throat> And that's a good question to ask ourselves from time to time. So many times in the process of living, we just, we just do. You know, we just do what's asked of us. And we don't always think about what we do and why we do it. It is good to examine our lives from time to time to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? I want to uh, do that, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to take a uh, break before we really get into the book of Hebrews and try to bring some uh, of what we've talked about in the month of August all together and to explain a little bit about what we're talking about when we say Love Out Loud. Love Out Loud is not a program. It's, it's not even a ministry or it's an event. It's more of a focus and to talk about this focus and, and how it will dictate what we'll be doing uh, not only for the next few months but the next couple years and uh, let me just take you back to the very first sermon that I preached after we finished Genesis, and that was found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just remind you as to what it was saying. Uh, we started with verse 19, and it said, But God's firm foundation stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and, number two, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so, in other words, if you ever want to want to know the two marks of what a believer is to be, uh, and, and you ask, is this person a Christian, then there's two things you need to know. God and God alone knows the heart. He knows those who are His, but the second seal is this, that everyone who names the name of Christ will depart from iniquity. If there is someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but yet does not depart from sin in their life, it is a mark that they are not a part of the church, a part of God's community. And so those are the two foundations of the church. Uh, it stands sure, as Paul says in verse 19. Uh, and so, verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. If any person would cleanse himself from the latter, he would be a vessel for honor. Set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. And we concentrated on that. And the thought was, we as a church, we want to be useful for the master. We want to be set apart for his purposes. Uh, we want to be ready for every good work. And so in verse 22, it tells us specifically, if this is true, we flee, flee youthful passions Instead, we pursue righteousness, faith, 
love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, there is a bond of those who follow Jesus Christ. We want to be with them. We want to be called alongside of them, pursue righteousness, faith, and love with these especially. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We saw within these passages a real need in our parts to repent, uh, to make sure that there was not uh, useless quarrels among us, that there was a kindness among us. And so we set aside, especially that Sunday evening, and what was a solemn assembly, and, <clears throat> and calling our people to prayer and repent. And we listed out specific sins uh, generally, as well as specifically in our, our corporate body. We had an uh, opportunity for folks to actually come to one another and talk to, with one another and uh, to seek restoration with that person. Uh, We were able to see the Lord doing that among our bodies, and we still continue. I believe God did a work among those of us, of our core, of our church, that that is a desire and need in our church body. And we are starting to see and being sensitive to relationships with one another and seeing how that impacts one another. And so we went from there, and we went to Romans chapter 14 and Romans 15. We spent the last three weeks of August looking at those chapters. The idea is, well, we say... That we are a loving church. And in fact, you know, everyone, if you talk to every church, it seems like they're going to all claim that. I'm a member of a loving church. But the fact of the matter is, not all the churches are loving. I've been in some that weren't loving. But they claim they're loving. What, What do they mean? Well, usually what they mean is that we are a loving church among people that we like. If I know you... And you love me, I'm, love, I'm loving you, we're a loving church. But if it's someone they don't know, well, they may not be loving to them. And the fact of the matter is, is, is as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are called to love. Not to like, but to love. And anyone can love people who love you. That's nothing strange about that. The mafia's got that down. All right, so how are we going to be different from the mafia? (laughs) Hopefully there'll be a number of ways. But one of which will be that we will love people that are sometimes unlovable. In fact, sometimes just irritating. And if we can love those people, then certainly we can also love someone that we've not yet known. And one of the problems we have in the church church bodies is that we will have personal convictions that we believe these are the things that are right for us to do not necessarily cleared out uh explained in scripture as right and wrong as sin and not sin but there there are certain gray areas and we will hold with uh stubbornness if you will to these things and there's nothing wrong with that we need to be firm in our convictions and be fully persuaded that what we do we do out of worship from god but we also need to realize uh, and we've learned in the end of August that there are some areas that people can disagree with and still be a fine follower and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And it's okay that there is room for disagreement and these personal areas of conviction. And in that 
that understanding helps us to be a gracious church, a loving church, to understand that. Because I'm, you know, I just want to make sure that we have a good idea of knowing how to love one another before we start talking to everyone out in the community and say, hey, we want to love you too. We, we want to be a blessing to you. Well, we've got to figure out how to love one another. But we've had some teaching on this, and I pray that it's not just in your brain, but it's getting into your actions and to your attitudes, your heart. All right? And so let's bring this all together a little bit here. Um, you know, we, we looked at 2 Timothy 2. We've looked at Romans. I, in fact, let's, if you will allow me, I want to just give you a snapshot of the early church. Let's just look at some qualities as we go to the book of Acts and see some of these qualities in the church. And I pray that we can see how these things can be in our church body. And as we read uh, the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter 2, uh, I just want to, uh, I want you to pay attention to something. I want you to pay attention to the reaction of the, of the, the population around them. All right? There are some hints every once in a while as we read this of, of what they're thinking and what they're feeling. All right. So Acts, uh, actually, chapter one, verse eight is, uh, well, it's a huge direction that Jesus gives us. It is the last time that Jesus are, is with the disciples, the followers of him. And uh, in this passage, it tells us that, that the, uh, Jesus ascended up to be with God the Father. That there is a word from the angels that just as he is gone, he's going to come again. Uh, so live your life with expectation as a follower of Christ. Uh, Verse 8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Acts 1-8 actually is giving the outline for the entire book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 1 through 7 is the passaging uh, passage that talks about the, the witness of the Holy Spirit through the disciples in Jerusalem. And then we see from chapter 8 on that it starts to focus then into Samaria. And then the latter part of the book is to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see the outline for the entire book in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But the key here, he tells them, is you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait on the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus had talked with them about this, telling them that the Spirit of God would come. And uh, he says, now you guys, I know you've been with me. You've been with me through three years. You've memorized the things that I've taught you. You've seen me resurrected. I mean, you've ate with me after the resurrection. You're about to see me ascend up to the Father. Uh, but you need something more. Listen, you need to understand. We, as followers of Christ, it's not enough for us just to know the Bible. Okay? It's not enough for us just to be excited about Jesus Christ. The disciples had those things. But he tells them, you must wait for the Spirit of God. And this tells us that as a church, we still need the Spirit of God working in our lives individually as well as corporately as a body. You'll find throughout the New Testament, time and time again, there's, a, there's an, a, an exhortation, an encouragement. Uh, he says, don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Spirit of God, be filled with God's Spirit. In other words, be yielded to God's Spirit. Why? Because that is so important for the church to be effective, for you as a a follower of Christ to be effective, you must have the Spirit of God. And so Jesus says, wait, just wait until this happens. Uh, And so we see in uh, in Acts chapter 2 that indeed 
the Spirit of God comes. So it's, it's a, done in a Jewish holiday of Pentecost, and uh, just incredible time. Peter is starting to teach and preach uh, to large crowds, uh, a drastic uh, reversal of when he was running away when Jesus was crucified and, and fleeing him. But now he's preaching to thousands because he's seen, he's seen the resurrected Christ and he has the Spirit of God on him. Uh, there's something drastically different about Peter now. And so uh, you see the effect. Uh, verse 41 tells us that 3,000 individuals uh, became saved or became a follower of Jesus Christ and renounced Jesus or renounced their self and announced Jesus as their king and was added to the community. Verse 42 through 47 is kind of the key passages that still today's, today gives us instruction as a church. What are the qualities of a church? What do we do? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There needs to be a continued still, a devotion of ourselves to the word of God of studying the scriptures. That's why I do what I do in preaching verse by verse. I, I, I just I can't do anything better than that. All right. And so we teach the scriptures and we're committed to that. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. In other words, they saw what held them in common. What held them in common was Jesus as their king, the forgiveness of God given to them, the experience of grace, the understanding that they were sinners, they needed it. And this is what held them in common. They were devoted to that. And they were with one another for those purposes. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. This is what Jesus asked them to do, uh, to remember him by the Lord's Supper. We still are to be doing the same. And they are devoted themselves to prayer, to the prayers. Why? Because it was necessary for God to do the work. And that means they had to be praying. Now notice the reaction, verse 43. And all came, our fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling, or they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Well, they didn't have life insurance. I had to break the news to Mark Brown and George Uhas. They didn't have life insurance. They didn't have health insurance. They didn't have property insurance. What did they have? They had one another. They had one another. Brother Stephen was their medical insurance. Barnabas was their life insurance. If something was to happen with one another, there was a commitment to say, hey, if something happens to me, if I get stoned, Who's going to watch out for my children and my, my widow, my wife? And there was the commitment of one another. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice, what is the community reaction? There was an all. There's a fear upon every soul. And then 47, there is favor with all the people. Now, chapter 3. Chapter 3, uh, we find that the church is, is starting to see adversity, but it gets also uh, emphasis like never before. There, there's the Peter and John before the council. Uh, so there's uh, 
recognition before the church leadership or the uh, government leaders at that day and time. There was, in the end of chapter 4, there was the, the prayer of the believers praying for boldness. But what, what precipitated this? What caused all this? You see in the first part of Acts chapter 3, it was just Peter and John going to worship, going to temple, and they see a lame person along the way, and he's asking for help. And Peter and John says, you know what? Let's help this guy. They couldn't give him money. Because they'd already given it all. He says, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And this act of mercy, an act of power, a miracle, just brings the church up onto a stage where persecution starts to begin. But notice in the end of chapter 4, after they had this prayer saying, God, you know what? We see that persecution is going to come our way. We don't pray that this is going away, that, that you will spare us from this. But God, give us the boldness to stand up and be strong for you in the midst of persecution. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Why? Because they had one purpose. They had one Savior. And that was what held them a common. See, a church that's going to be a blessing is going to have one heart, one soul. Not because they're stressing so much, let's be unified, let's be unified. That's not how that happens. What happens is, let's make the gospel our reason for being. And as they have one purpose, unity is a side effect. It's not the emphasis, it's just the side effect. That we are committed for this purpose. And so, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. In other words, everything that belongs to me belongs to God and to the purposes that he sets aside. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. <laughs> the, the attitude is, God, if you've given it to me, you've given it to me for a reason. God, let me be open that if there is a need that comes my way, perhaps maybe you've blessed me with this so that I, I can give it to them. And that was the attitude of the entire church. I was uh, listening to a testimony by an individual by the name of Lonnie Riley. He's, a, uh, he's one of our missionaries up in the Appalachian areas, doing incredible work. Uh, it's just amazing uh, how the Lord's working uh, in that, that region. Uh, Appalachian region has a, a good deal of poverty there. And uh, he had this attitude. He was just sharing the story of how someone was asking him, I can't remember if it was $50 or $100, but they're asking him for some money and and his attitude was, well, I'll tell you what, brother, I, I don't have that right now. But if God gives it to me, I'll give it to you. <laughs> and that hit me because I thought, you know what? I don't know if I could say that. Because here's my attitude is that, well, you know what? I couldn't say to him, one, that I don't have that money. <laughs> my thought is, well, you know what? I have that money, but it's not really for you. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. It, it's for me. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. And what's required for, for Lonnie to say that was to first say that everything that I have belongs to God, belongs to him. And sure enough, Lonnie Riley was doing some work in the community, and, and someone had gave, gave him money. Uh, he didn't ask for it, just gave him money because of the work he was doing in the community. And it, 
hit him. Oh, yeah. And he was able to give this money uh, to the individual that asked. And, and that's kind of the mindset that's right here, that they're thinking, you know what? If God gives it to me, I'm going to give it to this person. And so, with this comes pride. Ananias comes in, Sapphira, and they say, you know what? When folks give like that, they get a good bit of recognition. Can I find a way to get that recognition but not really give all? So they sold some land, kept some money for themselves, and then told Peter and told the church, this is all the proceeds from the cell. Let's, let's give it. Peter, by Holy Spirit's working, was able to detect that this was a lie and said to them, Ananias and Sapphira, you have not lied to men, but you've lied to the Spirit, the Spirit of God that is among us. Therefore, you've lied to God. Whoa. Do you understand that when the Spirit of God reigns in a community, how you treat that community is how you treat God. Folks say, well, you know what? Those in the Old Testament, they never could get it. They always, always leave in God the Father. Then we read the Gospels and we read the disciples and say, man, why couldn't they just stick with Jesus? They, they couldn't just stick with Jesus. But listen, God the Father worked in the Old Testament. God the Son worked in the Gospels. God the Spirit works in Acts all the way up today. And what was said of the Old Testament believers, what was said of disciples and betraying Jesus Christ can be said of us today and how we treat the Spirit of God. How do we treat the community in which the Spirit is to reign? We treat it flippantly. No, it's not needed. And we're saying the same thing about God. So Ananias, Sapphira, they say, what's the big deal? Just man, I'm going to lie to man. God says, no, you've lied to me. And they die at that moment in time. Notice verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The community of believers understood the spirit of God is in this body and how we treat this church is how we treat God. Now verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And that's a section of the temple. And none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. They had favor with the people. The people were in awe. And they held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We read this and think, my goodness, that's incredible. Why doesn't God do stuff like that today? I mean, when I walk by, nothing happens. You know? That's incredible. Just the shadow? Well, you want God to do the miraculous. But let me just challenge you here. You know, it's one thing to pray. God wants you to do a miracle and heal this person. But we're not willing to do the ordinary. But we want God to do the extraordinary. We're not willing to do the ordinary. What do I mean? 
There's someone that may be sick or there may be a need and they're hurting. We've got the provisions. We've got the blessings God's given to us. But we do not give them to God. And consequently, we do not make them available for God to use in this person's life. And yet we say, God, do a miracle. Can you see how that's a problem? How can we ask God to do the miraculous when we have not even made ourselves available to do the ordinary for what someone who loves someone does? And so I would just bring out that before the extraordinary occurs, they had already done the ordinary. In other words, that which did not require supernatural power, that which was simply saying we surrender our all to God and whatever has already been made available to us, we make available for God to work. But God does the extraordinary here. And God, I believe, can do the extraordinary. It's up to him as to what he does. It's up to his choosing. But God will use the people who set themselves apart as useful for the master, cleansing themselves from that which distracts them and, and taints their usability. Now, what happens here? Well, the religious establishment doesn't like this at all, and they bring and arrest some of the apostles. But we see that God still works. But in Acts chapter 6, there is such a, a growing, amidst a, a growing uh, group of this church, there's starting to be a division. Race starts to play a part and says, you know what? Well, you're not treating this race right. And so that was not the intention of the church. And so they bring up deacons, uh, set them aside for a practical service and serving all the races alike to make sure that there was unity and harmony, that this was not a distraction to the church because the focus of the church was the gospel, which makes no racial, racial uh, limits. And so notice the qualifications here. Verse, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then, verse 8, Stephen gets highlighted. Notice his qualifications. Stephen, full of grace, full of power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. You see the same themes. The Spirit of God is filling their life. Grace, therefore, is also filling their life. And they are doing Miraculous things among the people. They're making a difference. Stephen gets persecuted and stoned. You see this in Acts chapter 7. Saul comes into the picture here. This great sermon of of Stephen. His death, verse 54 through 60. Chapter 8, we find that they move from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the regions, even to the uttermost parts of the world, not because of some great prayer meeting that they had and said, hey, you know what, we've had it here in Jerusalem long enough. Uh, I think we've done our job. Let's go on. No, it wasn't such a a nice, tidy move like that. It was just that folks started getting missing. They'd have their gatherings and say, where's Stephen? Oh, Stephen, he's no longer with us. He's been stoned. Where's Where's Matthews? Where's James? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I heard a report that he was in prison. Folks started getting missing, and they started getting killed, and they started to, to see this, and they realized, hey, if we want to live and we want to survive, we've got to go, and they spread out. It's amazing how God can use evil things for his purposes. You notice that as they go, verse 4 of chapter 8, Philip goes into Samaria, 
Now those who were scattered went abroad preaching the word. They just shared. You know what? Let me share with, share with you about Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? Listen, you need to know. There are people that live in Green Pines, Barkley Downs, Mingo Creek, Princeton Manor, Planters Walk, up and down this road. And I guarantee you, there is someone that does not know about Jesus Christ. You may think that's strange. Until at my last church, I went just a quarter of a mile where you could still see the church. And I asked them, in your personal opinion, what do you think it takes for someone to go to heaven? They said, I have no idea. Have you ever heard about Jesus? Not much. I was hoping someone could tell me. <laughs> and I could look out the window and see the church building. Johnston County. Listen, when you've got a thousand some that live around here, or four thousand some in one mile radius... You need to know there are some people that have never heard about Jesus. As you go, it is important for us to be talking about Jesus and what he's done. And so these went, scattered abroad, preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. You see that this becomes the hallmark as they go about the preaching of the word of Christ, the working of signs, the blessings in the community, that people, the community, the populace, knows that there's something different about these people because of their kindness, their love. There's signs that are being done. The miracles that are being done. Let me just ask you. I mean, looking at these reactions of the early church. Favor were on the people. They were in awe of the fear of God. They held them in high esteem. They paid attention. Acts 8, 6. Would that describe Nightdale's reaction to us? Would that describe Raleigh's, Eastern Wake's reaction to Green Pines Baptist? Chances are they may not even know we exist. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. This is how church was intended to be. But this is how church is now. What has happened? I just want to present to you that we do what they did in the early church. That we do what has always been told us to do. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels that have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If I teach the Bible 
word for word and believe it from Genesis to Revelation, but I do not love, I am nothing. If we as a church have all kinds of charitable exercises, but we do not love, we are nothing. If we have a worship style that is exciting, that shakes your soul, a teaching that is entertaining uh, and appealing, but we do not love, we are wasting our time. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. I just want to present to you that what we need to do, if you're ready to stop playing church, just into maintaining the right institutions, making sure all the functions are being done, if that gets old to you, and I believe if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a heart cry to make a difference. I just want to present to you that we look at as a church How do we love Nightdale? How do we love Raleigh, this section that we're in? It occurs to me, and it took me a little while to figure this out, that after I come back from a mission trip, I don't have to leave the mission trip. (laughs) But to figure out how to live my life in such a way that it is a mission trip that Jesus has called us to be. If, instead of going to Nepal or Kenya, or Mexico, or East Asia, what if we were collectively called to be here? What if we were sent here to set up base right on this road? What would we do differently if this was a mission trip that we were here on a temporary assignment to go just for a little while? How would we focus our life? This is the question I brought to the leadership team, I brought to the deacons. And I want us to think about, what do we do differently? Because life is a mission trip. Life is temporary. And wherever we are, we are there on assignment by a king. And I'm just asking us to think that way and live that way. I don't think we'll regret it. And so that was the challenge given out to a leadership team. I've learned some lessons. I try to bring a lifelong lesson every mission trip I go on. When I went to Belarus, the question was, if the, if the government was against us, would anyone in our community stand up and say, no, we need green pines? When I went to India, then Nepal, two lessons I learned. One, we cannot depend on all the other churches round up, around us to raise up a generation to worship the Lord. It is upon us to do that. And then this last time I learned the precious gift of prayer that is an incredible gift of prayer. Bringing all these things together and what we're doing together and loving out loud. We need to raise up generations that will worship the Lord. We need to make it and live it in such a way that if government was against us, the community would stand up and say, no, we need green pines. And we need to understand the gift of prayer. So let me take you to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, this is nothing new. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Listen, what I'm telling us to do as a church to love others is huge. It is a question of eternal destiny. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, if you've come to a point where you realize you need help, you need forgiveness, you understand that you are not perfect, that you do not have it together, that you are born broken, you're born with the selfish direction tendency, then you have, by the help of God, seen life as it is. And you've gone to God and asked God to forgive you. Say, God, this is my way. I need your help. I need your working in my life. And you understand that there is a penalty because God is just. He cannot just pretend that these things didn't happen. But no, there is and there must be a punishment for your selfish living, for your sins. Jesus comes and agrees with God the Father, says, I will pay the penalty for their sins. And he on the cross becomes your sin. He became your sin. That which you yourself are ashamed of, Jesus became. Therefore, he says on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Because he became my selfishness. He became my sin. And he dies and, and pays the penalty of my sin. But he is greater than my sin. He is more holy than my sin. He is more powerful than my sin. And so therefore, the death of God, uh, the death of my sin could not hold him down. And so when he got raised by God the Father on the third day, it is proof that his death was effective for my sin. And it gives and extends a promise to all who will come and trust in him and say, I believe that Jesus died on, my, on the cross for me. It's not by my works. Jesus gives forgiveness to me, gives eternal life to me as a gift because it's totally apart from me. Not about my pride. I believe that. I've experienced that. And when you have experienced that, notice it has an effect on you. Verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If Christ did for that, did that for us, we accepted it. Everything's fair game. He can ask of us anything what he wants. And so, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother's brother in need, Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? This verse 18 forms the thought behind the love out loud. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The thought is, we have bottled up the love of God in our hearts. It is high time. The Green Pie neighborhood, Barkley Downs, all these neighborhoods knows personally, one-on-one, that Green Pines not only exist, but loves them. Loves them. And they know that not because we came and said, hey, we love you. They know that because we're praying for them, but not only because we're praying for them, but that we are taking our resources and taking who we are together and finding specific ways to be a blessing to that community. Tangible, physical ways where we can bless a neighborhood. That's the idea behind love out loud. It's interesting. In the early church, they styled themselves disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. It is the community at large that gave them, especially in Antioch, gave them the title Christians, our little Christ. 
Today, we style ourselves as Christians. But what does the community at large call us? (laughs) That's another question altogether, isn't it? Depends on what they know about you. It's popular if you were to ask in general, what do you think about Christians? What do you think about the church? More often than not, you probably hear words such as hypocrite, useless. How did it get so reversed? Maybe because we stopped calling ourselves followers of Christ. To be the vessels of love. Listen, here's the idea. I want to just give it to you. In Love Out Loud, there are three phases. There are three phases. The first phase is one we've already been engaged in, but will start more intentionally in the end of September. And that is, one is prayer and also to gather information. We want to train a survey team who will go out and they will pray as they, we will assign them streets of the Green Pine neighborhood and they will pray especially for these streets, but they will also be trained in how to gather information, one by observation, but also by going up and talking to these individuals and asking three main questions uh, about their thoughts, their needs for this community, and perhaps maybe how a church can minister to those needs. We'll want information from those of you who live in Green Pines, figure out what the needs are. And then in phase number two, We'll get that information together, the leadership team, which, by the way, I've asked the deacons and the leadership team to be this first scouting team, to go about asking those uh, to be a part of this, to have a team of three uh, to go together. And then the leadership team will gather together and bring this information and start looking within the church and figure out what are some very specific projects that we can do together as a church body. Okay. This is where you come in. You need to be in a small group. All right. I trust you're in the small group. If you're not, talk to me. I want to, I want to make sure that you trial some small groups because what we need from you is for you to tell your small group leader what you're good at, what you're good at, what your what your skills are, what your abilities are, what you do maybe in your job. We need to know. We need to have a good idea what we're good at as a church. So just tell them what you're good at. And then what we can do is we can bridge what we're good at with what the needs are and say, look, this is how we can love you. And so the third phase is the actual action times. We may have uh, a landscaping team. We may have a construction team. Uh, We already do some things like the mills and wheels. There may be some permanent ministries that start out of this. Uh, and that would be great if it does. But that third phase is, is what we're shooting for in November, where we are actually doing the Love Out Loud projects. And the idea is to demonstrate to that neighborhood, we love you. We want to minister to you. Now, while the third phase is going on, phase one starting over again. Some of you are wondering, I thought you said all of Hodge Road. This, you're just talking about Green Pine neighborhood. We're going to do every neighborhood. But we're going to do it one neighborhood at a time. So while phase three is going on, phase one starts over looking at Barkley Downs. And we keep doing this as we go up and down the road to Mingo Creek, to Planters Walk, 
to Princeton Manor, to go across the road, across Pole, Pole Road, and then I believe in the Golden Valley uh, area, and then to go on the other side, on 64, where there's already the new apartments that are being built there. By that time, we'll probably have Cheswick's down and Langston Ridge already built, and then we'll have to keep on working, all right? Now, some of you are going to get a little jealous, thinking, well, you know what? I don't live on Hodge Road. What about my neighborhood? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to have a, a church-sanctioned uh, project going on for it to be effective in your neighborhood. You live in that neighborhood? Then you guess what? You're, you're missionaries there. You can go ahead and get started. One of the best things you can do is if you, if you have a spouse, go with them or find someone else and go walking, praying for your neighbors and being open for how God may want you to be involved in their life. Go ahead and get started. We need some, some folks to go ahead and, and get ahead of us because it's going to take us a long time uh, to get past Hodge Road. I mean, we hadn't even got on Old Facing yet, you know. Uh, but this is probably about a two-year process right here. You understand what I'm saying? We want to be intentional. We're not starting new things. We're refocusing all that we already have. Our Sunday school classes, our ministries, the brotherhoods, the women's ministry, everything to be figuring out how can we be a blessing to this neighborhood, to this community, to show in very specific ways that we love them, this church. So here's the challenge I want you to do. You start by praying. Start by making yourselves available. But the number one thing is to say before God, God, I surrender to you. Whatever you call me to do, whatever you've blessed me with, I want to be open to how you may want to use that. We had a, we had a, um, a family that was a, a couple that went out to the sheriff's department. They said, uh, you know what? Here's something we need. We need a defibrillator. I thought, okay. <laughs> our, our fellow was talking to him. He said, all right, we don't have one of those. But the thought is, God, if you give us a defibrillator, we'll give it to the sheriff's department. Now, you don't get those at a yard sale, but if you do, let us know. I think it costs like $1,500 for one of those things. But, you know, the Lord's blessed us. Our church is uniquely blessed among many churches in this time, this season. Can we figure out a way to get a defibrillator and to give it to the sheriff's department and say, look, this is useful in saving lives? We want to do it to save our community for the gospel. We want to be a blessing to you. These are some very specific things that we can do. So pray for leadership. Pray for focus. Pray for enthusiasm. Pray for participation. Pray for success. Pray for protection. But pray for God's glory in the midst of this. And it starts by first saying, I surrender all. I want to invite you to do that. Let's pray.